A man without ethics is a wild beast loosed upon this world. Welcome to Wild Beasts, a podcast about ethics. Today's episode features a conversation with Ahmed Amer, a data storage expert and a faculty scholar at the Markala Center. Why are companies storing massive amounts of data? And how much of it do we actually need to store? But first, what does a systems guy like Ahmed Amer even do? I'm Courtney Davis. Thanks for tuning in. I can tell you what I'm working on right now, but I can also give you the 10,000-foot view of why I work on what I work on. Cool. Okay, dumb question. Uh, first social media. First social media platform. No, 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 not which was yours, but which do you think was the first one? Well, how, I guess, how do you define a social media platform? Ah, so you're already anticipating that it's a trick question. MySpace. Let's all play along. Yeah, that's that's everyone's automatic guess. It's MySpace. But then the, the, the old, old, old-timer geeky folk like me would say things like, ah, oh, you forget about the bulletin boards and the BBS services back in the day when we didn't have an internet and we dial into a computer via phone number and leave messages for Sylvester Stallone so he could blow stuff up. That's a very bad B-movie reference, by the way. But no, it depends exactly, depends what you mean by a social media platform. Because arguably, the first one would be coffee. Literally the introduction of coffee into Europe. Because uh, what happened was it did something that was rather weird. Where did you usually gather to drink socially? Before coffee was introduced into Europe, you would gather at a tavern or a bar. Basically, you'd gather to drink liquid that wouldn't kill you. That's the whole point of beer and alcohol is that it was less likely to kill you than drinking well water. So you gather in, in, in taverns. But there's an interesting side effect that, al- that alcohol does to you. Okay, I'm not an expert on this, forgive me. But it does not make you more intellectually astute, right? It impairs your judgment. It impairs your judgment, delays your response times, generally makes it easier to, in some ways, to get along with people, but also doesn't exactly stimulate conversation and interaction. Whereas meeting in a coffee house you were meeting while drinking something that made you basically think faster and be a bit more alert and sharper. So coffee houses became the intellectual hubs of getting together and exchanging ideas. And they were also how you wound up exchanging pamphlets and stuff when printing was license controlled. So it was effectively a peer-to-peer communication system. So what's the first social media platform? I would say introduction of coffee into medieval Europe. But Somebody would say, but it came from the East. So why don't you just say that it was where it came from? But it was the confluence of coffee being used in that weird social setting in a place where printing presses were actually taking off like crazy. Whereas in the East, printing presses had been outlawed and were state controlled. The autonomy of media exchange. Exactly. So that begs the question. What is a social media platform, right? In, in general, a coffee house, this is kind of contrived and a little hand wavy. So you're probably going to say, well, it has to be data and data being communicated. But weirdly enough, data when it was communicated via telegram was basically written down and then passed on, written down and then passed on. But when our telecommunications infrastructure got better, we lost that write it down and pass it on aspect of it. So we actually took a step back. So you could argue that telegrams and wire services relaying the news were a kind of 
peer-to-peer -peer transfer of information. But the moment we switched to radio broadcast, it wasn't anymore. It was sit back, couch potato, have the data thrown at you, and that was it. So we literally went from something that looked more like a social media platform than at like today to something that looked less as the technology progressed. This is a roundabout way of saying, I, I look at data storage. <laughs> that's, that's technically what I look at. So when we went from telegraph to radio broadcast to television broadcast, we lost my area. The data storage part was what was then taken out of the technology. When you brought it back in and you had convey information while storing it at intermediate points, you come back to the BBSs, MySpaces, and then you can have social media platforms again. So it's an odd arc, right? We had something that looked more like it in the past. Our communications technology got better, but it got better in such a way that we then abandoned the preservation of information temporarily. But as that became better and got linked to it again, we wound up back where we were, but at, on steroids. Right, and then to clarify, the reason that we lost the data storage element when we moved to telecommunications or radio broadcasting, as you said, the data storage technology that we have now wasn't present because presently, like, I mean, you can store that data, right? Broadcast or things like that. And then, I don't know, keep that data somewhere. And we had to digitize it again so that we could quickly record, then send it on. Because once we did broadcast, it was yeah, you could record it, but it was analog. There was nothing you could do to it. So just key to this arc is that we didn't have that technology yet. Thus, data storage was not a part of our exchange. We didn't have the ability to digitize the data and make it so general purpose and store it and then pass it on. So we had the ability to store, but only in analog form, which was just capture what it was, not store it, look at it, pass it on. The moment we went live telegram, we lost that storage bit in the middle. All right, so I'm a data storage guy, but I'm also a systems guy. So in, in, computer, in computer science and engineering, actually in computer science in general, there are people who are very theoretical and there are people who are very applied. They write code and do stuff. Now, when it comes to research, there are people whose research goes towards that theoretical end of things. They look at algorithms, they look at concepts, they'll prove theorems, they'll do a lot of math. There are also people who then use the math to do something. You take that far enough and you're talking about the information systems majors and the business analytics people and all that stuff. They take the tool and they apply it. The theory guys think about the tool, think about its meaning, think about its theoretical limits. Within the theory people, there's a group of people who look at how things apply together to build something else. So that's systems people. My, my, my clan. So systems people, they will teach networks courses, operating systems courses, sometimes database courses, things like that, where you're building things that do something with the data usually. It's all about layers of software that simplify complexity. It's all about how you build things that don't break, how you build things that go fast or go far for cheap. Durability, efficiency. Exactly. Depending on your goal, the structure of your system is often way more important than the individual pieces that are in it. Now, I'm a systems person who really, really likes data storage systems in particular. And, and, and so I specialized for a while in storage technologies, but that's why Irina mentioned to you the provenance work. Because one of the things we do with the data we store is we write it down and then we try to figure out ways to configure the way we wrote it down, what we wrote it on, how we're reading it, to try to make the system again, either faster, stronger, 
more resilient or cheaper. Give me a performance goal. We will tweak the system to try to maximize that goal. But when you say stronger, what does that mean? Traditionally, it used to mean building a system where if physical pieces of it break, you still can pull your data out of it. As systems became more distributed, more computers working together, larger data centers, this idea of making it stronger, more resilient, has other meanings. It's not just, oh, a piece broke. Well, what happens if a piece gets overwritten? What happens if there's a bug that causes one system to go nuts and then the data in it is no longer retrievable? That's effectively the same as spilling Coke on your server and it blowing up, but it's also different because it means guarding against the way you use it being bad. Famous story from my youth, one of my first jobs out of college was configuring and designing systems for backing up data for geologists. And one day we almost lost a ton of data, not because any system broke, not because any software failed, but because the gentleman who was supposed to be putting the tapes in the machine was misreading the labels and putting the wrong tapes in and thereby overriding our backups. Human error. Yeah, that's how do you guard against that? Yeah, there's nothing you can do in the way that you've created your system, except maybe make it, maybe write the labels clearer. I don't know. (laughs) Yes, that's basically what you had to do. Really, that's not the thing you think about in system design, right? It's like, that's not some weird error correcting code. No, it's a better label printer. Well, so I'm a systems guy who looks at data. So the provenance issue is one where we are facing a lot of problems today that have to do with people arguing about the authenticity the correctness, the origins of data. And examples of that are deep fakes. Uh, examples of that are AI generated materials that we're not sure who to attribute it to, other deep fakes that are text, deep fakes that are video, deep fakes that are audio. But we've had that problem before unauthenticated materials presented to people as the truth. Have you ever heard of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion? I hope you never come across this. It's an incredibly anti-Semitic piece of garbage out there. It's really, really vile. And it is believed that it was originally released as a fake document by the KGB in response to America being able to push out Russian influence in North Africa. And so they figured out, you know what? This is something that's going to cause a lot of people to hate each other in that area. So let's, let's put this out there. But just an early example of... Disinformation. Yeah. Exactly. So what's provenance? Provenance is any information you have about how you got the artifact or the media that's in front of you. So data provenance, from a storage systems guy's perspective, is how do you build systems that allow people to look at the piece of data that's in front of them and tell them a story about how they got it. Tell them a trustworthy story about how they got it. And that's a tricky problem, but it's kind of solved. So what my advisee and I looked at most recently was how to build a system like that that's very general, very flexible, that you could apply to lots of different kinds of data. Our argument was, if you're going to build a library, you want a cyber librarian you can trust more than you want tools that help you figure out fake stuff. Yeah. Because the tools that figure out fake stuff, they're important, but that's an arms race between the forger and the detector, just back and forth. But if I give you a receipt telling you, hey, look, this video came from Bob. You know Bob. You like Bob. This video definitely came from Bob. He shared it. 
Now, where did Bob get it from? Look at the provenance chain to, to its origins. Yes, I'm sorry to say Bob got it off 4chan. So the arms race between the forger and the, the, the detector, the forger and the detector, is just one that would be like, here are the tools to detect the, the fake information, and the forger is finding ways around that. And then it's responding to that and finding ways around that and responding to that and finding ways around that. It, it takes the authenticity problem and turns it into a trust problem. Do you trust the people who gave you this? That's for you to decide. It no longer becomes a, is this the real Mona Lisa or one of the Doctor Who copies? But in a sense, the librarian and the archive of information that he offers or they offer is also a tool, right? Or a, a deep fake detecting tool in a sense, right? In, instead, of, instead of detecting the deep fake, have a way to certify origin. It's a detecting tool insofar as it doesn't just detect it, identify it, classify it as a deep fake. It shows you where it came from. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's a way to give you a tamper-proof seal on a box of medicine with an origin stamp rather than tell you, here, here's some medicine, test it before you eat it. Which then avoids the the authenticity or, or the not the authenticity, but the trust problem. It's no longer just someone saying that it is a thing. It's show it's showing you exactly who said to whom, to whom, to whom, to whom, to whom this thing was. Right. Okay. So maybe I trust Bob, but if Bob got this off 4chan, I don't trust it. Right. I trust Bob, and Bob got this from the original author of the work. Oh my God. Now I trust it. Okay. So, and then as a systems person, you're actually constructing those systems or building the library or you're the librarian? So remember how I said there are the theory guys at one end and the practical guys at one end? The most practical guys actually build the thing that someone can just take and use. I'm, I'm a researcher, so I care about proving what can be possibly done. And at that point, I basically wash my hands of it and say, hey, you can do this. I've shown that you can do this. Somebody do this, please. I want to look at something more interesting now. It's, it's a very spoiled existence, I'm afraid. I mean, no. Yes and no, but <laughs> you have your own set of skills and use them. And once you've identified the solution to a problem, you can then use your tools to solve another problem <laughs> so, and let someone else apply it. But, but that is just, honestly, I think it's important work that we've shown that you can build a general purpose system like that. But it's one problem. Right. There are scarier problems out there. We are deluged by a flood of data that will not stop. So we have to learn to do two things. One is store it efficiently and safely and securely in spite of its massive scale. So that's traditional storage research. So I've done a ton of that. And why? Why must we? Why must we store it? Well, yeah, why must we secure it safe? I mean, I can understand why, if you were going to store it, why you want, would want to do so securely and safely, but on whose behalf and why is that a requirement? Ah, so that is an amazing question. Let me counter it with another question to you. Do you feel good about forgetting? <laughs> no. <laughs> nobody can answer that and say yes, right? No, no, nobody wants to forget. So the corollary of that is everyone wants to remember. So the answer to your question, why are we deluged by a flood of data that we're keeping? Because we can and because we naturally want to. Now the rights or wrongs of it aren't really there. There are, there are legitimate reasons why we want to store more data than we currently have the capacity to. The Large Hadron Collider 
we throw away 90% of the data it generates because we don't have the capacity to store it. Genomic databases, we don't have enough to store the genes of every. We may want to medically, regardless of the privacy issue, just if we wanted to do massive scale research on a large population, we need a half petabyte per person. That's a massive amount of data. So, so the, sh the short answer to your question is, how much storage do we need? The answer is whatever we can get. And whatever we can get is a ridiculously insane large amount right now, and it's still growing. So we have to store it safely and securely. But your question is actually brilliant because it's the question that a lot of people tend to overlook. And in the long term, it's going to become a more important question, which is uh, we need to learn to forget. We need to learn to be okay with forgetting. And the only way we can be okay with forgetting is by having a means of determining what we want to keep, why, and what we want to forget. We have to feel good about that which we throw away, the memories we throw away. And the only way to feel good about the memories we throw away is to solve the data storage problem regarding what you prioritize to store. And that's the one that people just leave up to the economies and people's behavior. Yeah, I mean, just to return to my question on whose behalf, I mean, I think the anecdote about memory is relevant. Just as a brief aside, I remember being a young person that I am, I got like a new iPhone. I don't remember what model of iPhone it was when I was starting college. And when I got that iPhone, I had improperly backed up my previous iPhone and lost all of the photos that I had taken on my other iPhone from like my sophomore year of high school through my senior year of high school. And now I no longer have access to those photos. And just it's a, a funny thing to say, not funny, but it was like I mourned the loss of those photos. And I felt like those memories were forgotten. And it took me a while to accept that I would no longer be able to access those things. And just being a teen girl in 2016, 17, whenever that was, I mean, took loads of photos on my iPhone 6 or whatever it was. <laughs> just like an anecdote about that sensation of not having a good relationship with forgetting or with memory. Well, there's, there's, a, positive, there's a positive corollary to that, right? We all feel bad about forgetting. But then when we remember something that we had forgotten, what do we call that? Nostalgia. And it feels good. Yeah, and it does. And it's special. I mean, one of my qualms, one of my many qualms with technology and the digital space, especially social media platforms, is it just makes every moment, passing moment, passing memories just feel less significant because you always have access to them and you know that you'll never forget them because they'll always be stored somewhere and you can always look back at your photos from last week, you can always access those memories, those moments in time. And so just to say things that a lot of disenfranchised people have said in recent times, is just it completely tears you from the present. You don't know how to be present and like <laughs> you have no reason to be because you'll always be able to live in every moment because that data is stored somewhere and you can visit it and go to the library. That's, that's not entirely true. Because you'll buy a new phone and lose all your photos on it. No, no, no. So there's, there's, a, there's an Ignatian Jesuit exercise known as the examine, right? Where at the end of the day, you look at your day, you write down a journal, and you take the cares of the day and you just leave them there in that journal. You've written them down, so it's not like you're going to forget them. It's okay. They're there. Now you can rest easy because you don't have to keep those thoughts in your mind. People who journal in a diary, 
that's actually a nice thing about journals, right? You write down your cares for the day, you write down what your thoughts were. They don't have to be on your mind, keeping you awake at night. So yes, you're absolutely right. It makes you less present, but it also helps you let go. If you have faith that those things exist somewhere securely and safely. Exactly. If your memories are safe, you also you now have the freedom to keep in your cache the ones that you care about more and never fear losing. Right. And I would argue, too, that the act of journaling or writing in a diary is a more intimate, reflective, conscious process than it is to take photos of every meal you consume with your loved one or every like social event that you attend, making sure that you document it so that you can revisit that. You're not necessarily doing that so that you can let go, move on from those moments. You're doing it anxiously out of habit. Then all of those experiences are then mediated by this thing that pulls you away from that moment. Whereas journaling, keeping a diary is this sort of reflective, constructive, therapeutic exercise. <laughs> City of Pittsburgh has an inclined railway. I, I promise this is on, on, on the point you just made. That inclined railway is ancient, it's old, it's lovely, but it has a beautiful view of the city at night. So if you take that inclined railway up the hill, you see the city beneath you. And so tourists like to get on that uh, inclined railway. And I used to hate being on that thing. So I used to live there and take it. Because what would the tourists do? They would take out their cell phones or their digital cameras, and they would start flashing, flash photographing away inside a wooden box with glass windows at night. Now, I'm sure you know what happens if you take a flash photograph at the dark city through a window. You're basically getting a photograph of yourself in a box. Right? And, and what would annoy me the most would be that they would keep taking multiples of these, clearly not bothering to even look at the preview photo to see what kind of crappy photo they've just taken of, 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 of a flash flare. So you are so right. Technology allows us to just record thoughtlessly. Journaling forces us to do it deliberately. But technology doesn't force us to do it not deliberately. We can be more thoughtful. We can build systems that take more care regarding how we do that. We can enable that, but people still have to do the work. They do have to be the ones who invest. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's just, I mean, yeah, to go back to one of your earlier points is about prioritizing your goals. Or, I mean, I know we were talking about data storage and prioritizing what kinds of data we might want to keep it for who and why. Um, but the same is true for, you know, any sort of technology product design, social media, the way it's designed <laughs> is very destructive in the way that it you're right, it doesn't force anyone's hand, but they're designed deliberately to hook you so that you're recording everything anxiously. <laughs> exactly. We, we, we could enable things that make bad behavior easy to slip into, or we could enable better behavior. So, and I owe Irina for this, because many years ago, when I first joined Santa Clara, Irina introduced me to the whole idea of thinking critically about the good that things can do being important. That was my first exposure to formal ethics was Irina's introduction to this. Um, because prior to that, you had been 
mostly in engineering and in the circles or? As a systems guy, I looked at how to build good things. Yeah. For a performance-oriented definition of the good. Thanks to Irina, I had to put that good in quotes to ask, well, the metric that I have been given, how worthy is it? Right. That's the, that's the expanded question. Is it, there's good engineering and there's good engineering. Yeah, and engineering, it's just funny. I mean, I don't know. It's always like in any profession, it serves some end, some social end, um, because the things that engineers build, the systems that a systems guy builds <laughs> are supposed to serve society in some way, correct? Yes. But, but here's where... The, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. I'm curious what you have to say. Okay. What, what I was just going to add was that, yes, you can engineer in a way that promotes good. You could engineer in a way that makes it easier for people to do good or easier for people to do bad. However, a thing that's often overlooked when people talk about the good or the bad of particular tech is they will do it after the fact. They will think, here's the technology. Can it be used for good or bad? If you have the engineer think about it, they can add a little bit more to that. They can say, can this technology you reimagined or rebuilt in a way that encourages good or bad. You've been listening to Wild Beasts, a podcast from the Markla Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Thanks for tuning in and check out our website for more episodes about ethics.